today, Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to look at this, doubting, trusting, and following. Doubting, trusting, and following. I'm going to read Matthew 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. And I'll read that before we jump in this morning, and then we'll pray. Matthew 11, beginning in verse number 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went their way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this scripture. I pray that we would be able to dive in this morning to what you are telling John, your servant, what you were telling his friends, his disciples, what you were telling the crowds that were listening, sort of a secondary audience, and also what you were telling us as we read here the words of sacred scripture, your words, Lord, which live and abide forever. May we find in this text a place to rest our own struggles with doubt, maybe a path forward in asking those hard questions. May we come out the other side, trusting you more and more. Pray that you'd bless this time together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Matthew 11 really kind of starts to mark a shift in the narrative of Matthew's gospel. And uh, that shift kind of happens in all four of the gospel records because in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there comes a time when opposition to Christ's message um, sort of takes a more official and public setting. It becomes more of the 
the normal thing for Christ to be opposed than for him to be accepted. And we've already seen this rejection sort of hinted at and coming in the book of Matthew, specifically in chapter 9, when Jesus faced opposition after healing the paralyzed man and then the two blind men. When Jesus healed the paralyzed man, you'll recall that first he forgave the man's sins. And the Pharisees who heard that said to themselves, with Jesus knowing it, they said, this man is blaspheming. When Jesus healed the blind men, the accusation was even worse. They said, this man uh, casts out demons by the prince of demons. So the opposition is, is mounting, so to speak. Whatever the Pharisees had in mind of expectations for the Messiah, Jesus was not satisfying that for them. Although they had no doubt at this point heard that he was the Messiah, that he was to be the Messiah. In fact, they had probably heard that from the beginning as part of the ministry of a man called John the Baptist, who we read about in this chapter. We began to learn about John in Matthew 3 when we saw him by the river baptizing a baptism of repentance and preaching repent for the kingdom is at hand. And perhaps the most notable part of that story, and read a parallel account in Luke as well, is where Jesus approaches John for baptism. Jesus says, we need to do this to fulfill, positively fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus approached, John said, unequivocally, he proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was a great prophet, perhaps the last prophet during the Old Testament period. And he came preaching that he who is coming after me is mightier than me. It was a message of repentance that he was preaching because his perspective of messiahship had primarily to do with judgment. In Matthew 3, we read his message telling of the Messiah who would come with his, his winnowing fork and of separating the wheat from the chaff. And John had not only proclaimed Jesus as the one, this is the one, but he had also heard confirmation on that baptism day by God the Father himself when the voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now news travels fast when you have a wild and notable prophet like John the Baptist. So it's safe to assume that what he knew about Jesus was told abroad. It was part of his proclamation. Part of his preaching, repent, for the king is here. So the Pharisees had heard this, and they had their serious doubts and their rejection. And John had revelation from God that Jesus was the Messiah. But in chapter 2, or chapter 11, sorry, the doubts of the Pharisees and a certain kind of questioning from John himself come together. Now we read of John's own doubt. He was faced with grave circumstances. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But John asks the important question, are you the one? Now, at the onset, this was not rejection. It's not rejection at all, but it was a sincere question. A sincere question of what are you doing, God? What does your plan entail? 
And in John's mind, it seems like certain circumstances didn't line up in what he expected. Now, perhaps you've been there in your walk with the Lord, a moment not of rejection, but of honest and sincere questioning and wondering, is this really how things work? Is God really in this? Jesus closed chapter 10 with a message of receiving and rejecting. And here in chapter 11, that question is really fleshed out and illustrated with John and then the crowds. And this theme of faith and doubt will run right through chapter 12. And over the next few weeks, we'll see it from a few different perspectives. The doubt of John, which we see today, the doubt of the masses, many of whom would not believe, and the beginning of the formal opposition to Jesus by the leaders of Israel. But for today, I want to see this. What God does and allows may not always fit with our notions of how things should be. May we submit to God's work, his plan, and his ways. If you're keeping track on your outline, first we see a question from John. A question from John. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, verse 1, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus had just sent his disciples out on a mission to preach, to tell the, the cities and villages of Israel that the kingdom was there, that the Messiah was here. But Jesus didn't pause his own work there. He he kept on teaching and preaching in the disciples' cities, we read. And then John comes in, or at least a message from him. You see, we read here that John was in prison. We'll learn more about that account in Matthew 14. But John had been imprisoned by Herod Antipas, who was a Roman tetrarch, a, a client contractor ruler, from Rome or of Rome in Galilee. And we can spare the details for the later account in chapter 14, but in essence, we can say it this way. John's preaching of righteousness did not earn him a high view with Herod Antipas. So to prison he went, where eventually he would lose his head. Now, pause there for a moment and think about this scenario. John had been preaching that the Messiah was to come in righteousness, in vindication, and in judgment with his winnowing fork in his hand. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 3. There was a big sense that righteousness would prevail, that evil would be cast down, and probably, practically speaking, they were expecting an overthrow of their Roman opposition. Had that come to fruition yet? Well, no, it hadn't. In fact, from one perspective, it seems just the opposite. John, who we know to be a righteous man, was imprisoned for his righteous following of God. Now, it says that John, in prison, heard about the deeds of the Christ. And he sent his disciples to ask. There was a disconnect. John was sitting in prison, but he was hearing about the great work of this one who had already been proclaimed to be the new Messiah, the coming king. 
He was sitting in prison under the rulership of a wicked king, but he was hearing about the good works, the wonderful deeds of the true king, and he's wondering, how do these things line up? And with that disparity in mind, he sends his own disciples to ask a question for him. Now, Matthew tells us it was his question. He, he sent them. He sent word by his disciples and said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, some have tried to minimize the possibility of doubt on John's part. But I think that's to take away from John's real human nature. After all, he was a great man and a prophet and more than a prophet, but he was not superhuman. He was a man. And here he asks an honest question. Are you the one, he asks Jesus, to come? who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And the question beneath the question, if we kind of put it all together, is really this. Jesus, I proclaimed you as the one. I see your marvelous works, but where's the prevailing of righteousness? Where's the victory? Where's the winnowing for? Where's the judgment? We may ask similar questions in our own day. Lord, I see your truth. I see parts of it played out. I know it to be real in my life, but where is the victory? Where's the righteousness? Circumstances in life affect us. Circumstances in life are tiring. They're wearying. They are heavy in our thinking and in our emotions. And in those times, especially if you've been a long-time believer, you may face a certain amount of conviction when you doubt. You may think, well, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for years. I should be totally in control of my, of my mind and my faculties. But even John, the great prophet, had this honest and sincere question. John was in prison. He was probably not in the nicest of conditions. And in that fog of circumstances, it didn't seem like Jesus was totally living up to what had been proclaimed. Jesus' answer comes back to John through his disciples. And note, it doesn't come back with chiding John for doubt. Rather, it comes back with strengthening and with an invitation to blessing. Pick up verse four. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, Jesus really does two things here. He reminds John of the works which he has seen, which are indisputable. And he reminds him of the promises of scripture, which he knows and which Jesus fulfills. Jesus really is not quoting an exact passage, but it it really lines right up with two passages from Isaiah. One is Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, in streams in the desert. And again, in Isaiah 61, we read this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The signs promised with the coming of the Messiah were being fulfilled. Blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Good news. You see, the messianic promises were being fulfilled. In one account, Jesus goes into the synagogue and reads that scripture from Isaiah 61 about himself. And he says, today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. The question, Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus says with this answer, yes, yes, I am. Now, interestingly, when Jesus read that passage from Isaiah 61, he did not read the part about vengeance. Why is that? Well, it becomes clear through Jesus' ministry that in this coming, his first coming, that was not his prerogative. That was not the plan. Now, is that day of vengeance coming? Yes, it is. The book of Revelation gives us the images of the Lamb of God as a bloody warrior who will vindicate all righteousness and destroy the evildoers. But Jesus' first coming was a coming of invitation, a coming of blessing, a coming of redemption, of healing, of salvation. It was a coming to offer and to purchase forgiveness. Yes, Jesus is the one who was to come. He just isn't done all of his work yet. And Jesus invites John to believe that. He says, blessed is the one who is not ashamed or offended by me. Like a new beatitude, another one, Jesus offers blessings for all those who do accept him. In chapter 10, he spoke of blessing for receiving or accepting a righteous man and blessing for receiving or accepting a prophet. But now the blessing is the greatest one, a blessing for receiving or accepting the Son of God himself. And John here is essentially being exhorted to trust what God is doing and to not be limited by his understanding of what should be. There's a great application for us here in life because we are often tripped up by the wickedness, by evils, by loss, and we may get cast down because of those things, whether it's injustice or political evils or uh, immoral wars or the abortion crisis or the degradation of marriage and family, the rejection of God's ways and his blessings. But we can almost hear Jesus speaking in this sense to us. Blessed are you if you are not offended by me. Crossroads in life may cause us to feel we are in the minority. and We may think that the truth is losing. But in those times, we are not to lean on our own understanding. John was in prison. It didn't seem like righteousness was prevailing. But Jesus said, blessed are you if you are not offended by me. Yes, I am the one. Look at what's happening, John. Believe on me like you did 
from the beginning. I was reminded of Solomon's words in Proverbs 3, 5, where he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I think that's what Jesus was calling John to. Trust what the Lord is doing. Don't lean on your own understanding, your own perspective, your own circumstantial evidence. Rather, lean on the Lord himself. Moving on, we see second, an explanation of John. Now, when Jesus, when John's disciples left, Jesus takes a moment of teaching, an opportunity of teaching. And we pick it up in verse number seven. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus speaks to the crowd here because no doubt, if they're looking at this and saying, well, even John the Baptist has questions. What does that mean for us? Even that great, bold, and confident prophet John, if he's doubting, should we be doubting? Well, Jesus backs up their memory here by telling them about what exactly John was doing. John was not weak. He was not a reed shaken by the wind. He was not a man in soft clothing. Those are euphemisms for, uh, for weakness, really. A reed shaken by the wind is, is not a firmly fixed post. A, a man in soft clothing really denotes the one who has sort of an easy existence, a casual existence in the king's house, a cushy job, for instance. Not a rough and ready prophet like John. He literally did not wear soft clothing. He wore camel's hair and a leather belt. The third hypothetical question, what did you got in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, a, a man dressed in soft clothing? What did you go out to see, verse 9? A prophet? Yes, Jesus says, I tell you, and more than a prophet. That is, not just any prophet, but the prophet promised in Malachi 3. And Jesus quotes from this scripture, Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The promise is of a messenger to come before the Lord, a messenger of the Lord's covenant. And without a stretch and without a doubt, Jesus says, this is John the Baptist. That was him. And you see what Jesus is doing here? By reaffirming John and who he was, Jesus is actually reaffirming himself. He is lovingly addressing the doubts of the crowd, pointing them to what is true, pointing them to himself. And that is what we need in our doubts as well. Circumstances may cause us to falter. 
We hear about this often in our day. People who have had a bad experience with a particular church or are met with circumstances in their their religious life that caused them to question their faith. And I want to state very clearly that the circumstances can be questioned. If bad things are happening, we're not called to ignore them or pretend they don't exist. But what we are called to do is to return to the truth of the Lord, of his promises, and know that he is the same through all of these things. You may have a moment in life where you say, I cannot believe that God would allow that. I can't believe in a religion where where people do this or that. But that's just it. The circumstances are not the object of our faith. A person, namely Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he is the object of our faith. The one who did fulfill these things, he is the object of our faith. In our doubt, we must look to him. We must cling to him. It's okay to ask the question. John asked the right kind of question. But may we never throw Jesus and his teachings out with our bad experiences. Reading on verse number 11. Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has been no one or no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus, again, is bolstering John, and in doing so, is bolstering the crowd's faith in himself. Notice what Jesus says. Among those born of women, there is arisen none greater. John was an amazing person. I often wish that we knew a little bit more about his life, but John was not it. He was perhaps the greatest man Humanly speaking, naturally speaking, apart from Jesus, he perhaps was the greatest that ever lived. Jesus speaks so highly of him. But then Jesus makes an amazing statement. The one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Now, what does that mean? Well, notice what the contrast is. The contrast is between those born of women with those in the kingdom of heaven. Being part of Jesus' kingdom is what Matthew's gospel is all about, entering it, living in it, accepting it, knowing it. I think what Jesus is saying here is tied directly to what he said in John 3 to Nicodemus, because there he speaks about the kingdom of heaven. He says, you cannot enter the kingdom unless... He says, you are born again. And there's the comparison. Those born of women and those born again. And there is is one of the fundamental differences in the new blessings and wonders of the new covenant that Jesus introduces. It's the new birth. Yes, of those born of women, nobody is greater than John. But even the least person who is born again into God's kingdom 
is far more blessed than the greatest of all natural men. Now, is Jesus saying that John wasn't born again or couldn't be? I don't think so at all. I think he's simply saying to the crowds that, yes, even the great John the Baptist has doubts. But in my kingdom, in the new covenant, in the new birth, even that greatness will be overshadowed. Have you been born again into God's kingdom, as Jesus asked Nicodemus there in John 3? Have you followed him in that sense? I tell you, there is no greater blessing than to embrace him, to believe on him, and to trust him fully. But we'll read on. Jesus acknowledges then the opposition. He says, from the days of John, verse 12, until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. It's hard to know exactly what Jesus is referring to here. He may be referring to the Jewish zealots, who had been and were trying to physically overthrow Rome. He may be referring, on the other hand, to the violent treating of righteous men like John. Maybe he would lean toward the latter, but regardless, Jesus seems to be saying that violence is a sign that the coming of John, and therefore the coming of Jesus, was a pinnacle. This was, this was a big, major point. And we know that the point of his words is to instill faith in the hearers because he says, if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus again refers to another prophecy, which he applies to John in Malachi 4. And these are the last words of the Old Testament as we have it. Behold, it says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and coming day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This was the promise, the coming of Elijah, the prophet, before the day of the Lord. And in this case, Jesus says to the crowds, If you have ears to hear, if you have faith-filled ears, so to speak, if you have believing ears, trusting ears, godly ears, you will know that John fulfilled that prophecy, which means if John was a forerunner, then it goes back to that first question. Jesus, are you the one? Yes, he is the one. He is the one. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do your ears burn with these things, with the truth about Jesus as our Lord and God, master and ruler? Do you have ears to hear and trust in him? The first section we spoke about believers who may be doubting. But here I ask, are you a doubter who is being drawn to believe? God has orchestrated his plan and his wisdom to reveal himself in scripture and in Jesus Christ, his son, for the salvation of the world, for the forgiveness of sin. Do you have ears to hear? Well, lastly, as we round out this section, we see in verses 16 through 19, a parable of rejection. This little story, uh, 
I called it a parable. It's not grouped with the rest of Jesus' parables, which we'll begin to see in chapter 13, but it's very much like a parable in which Jesus casts a common experience of life alongside a real spiritual question. And in this parable, it is a deciding question. Will you follow what God is doing? Let's read it again. Verse 16. What to what? I compare this generation. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus, a master teacher, of course, brings a vivid picture to mind. Imagine this scene for a moment, if you will. Imagine yourself as a little child in first century Palestine and ask the question, what would you play? Children play make-believe sort of naturally. Maybe some of that is lost today with the popularity of technology and devices, but even in those things, there's a great amount of make-believe. As kids, we play house, we play war, we play cops and robbers, we make mud pies, we flood the ground to make little lakes, we, we do things that we see on a larger scale. We pretend to be doctors and lawyers and builders or things that we see our parents doing. Well, in the first century, some of the largest and most notable events of society were weddings and funerals. These events lasted days, a week, longer even. Weddings had great feasts stretched over long periods of time. Funerals had, had large processions and musicians and mourners who were hired to bolster the event. A big, a big wedding today, maybe a couple days event with a rehearsal and the actual day and a celebration, but a big event today is nothing compared to a big event in Jesus' day. And the children naturally would mimic these things. And that's the picture Jesus is drawing. He says the generation is like children playing with each other. But there's a large group of the children who just will not play along no matter what the game was. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Rejoicing and mourning, wedding and funeral, dance and dirge, the kids just wouldn't play along. This, Jesus says, is how the generation is reacting to Jesus and John. Think of it this way. John's message was the funeral message, a message of mourning, repentance, judgment, a message of preparation. Jesus' message was the wedding message. Joy, unity, new life, new existence. And both of these messages are part of the message of Scripture. The joy of the wedding, so to speak, was brought first by Jesus to be instilled. But the morning of the funeral is coming as well on that judgment day. But when the people saw John, they didn't have ears to hear his message. And when the people saw Jesus... They didn't have ears to hear his message either. John, a straight-laced, no-nonsense prophet, and they said he has a demon. Jesus, who ate at parties with tax collectors and sinners, more relaxed maybe, more joyful in his demeanor, 
more inviting even. Well, they called him a drunk and a glutton. Now, obviously, both of those things were, were slander. They were not true. The interesting thing is that we see God at work in both ministries, at both messages. John was the promised prophet and forerunner, and Jesus was the promised Messiah. Both the judgment and joy aspects of the new covenant were being fulfilled before the people's eyes, but they just wouldn't accept it. Now, when our kids act like this, when they just won't be happy no matter what, we might call them brats. But when God's people acted like this, he gave them a greater condemnation. He said in verse number 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, wisdom is proved, vindicated by its fruit. A very definitional verse in Proverbs 9, verse 10 tells us this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Jesus is saying, if you reject what is happening, you're rejecting what God is doing. If you're rejecting the message of John and my message, you're rejecting God himself. There aren't any other options. If you reject the message of John and Jesus of the coming of the Lord's Messiah, you reject the Lord himself. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord, it says, and it bears fruit. Namely, that a person with wisdom follows the Lord whom he fears. And in this case, Jesus is saying this generation has shown that they do not have the wisdom of the Lord because they've rejected his messenger and they've rejected himself. And that's the ultimate question for the crowd on that day. God is doing this. He is in John's ministry. He has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He is bringing in the kingdom. He is introducing this new birth. Do you follow him? Do you trust him? And the question remains for us today as well, doesn't it? One translation puts it in verse 19 this way, wisdom is justified by her children. And you could ask that question, can it be said of us that we are children of wisdom because we fear and follow the Lord? When circumstances in life cause us to question, do we throw out our faith because of circumstances or do we keep following the Lord whom we know to be our very present help? In John's gospel, chapter one, we read this. He, Jesus, the light, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Doubting, trusting, following. 
Where are you with these things? Do you believe but have honest doubts? Well, do what John did. Bring them to Jesus. Don't cast him aside because of circumstances. Simply because you can't see the entirety of God's plan coming together does not mean that he's not working. And simply because hope is dimly lit at times does not mean that the light is still not shining. Do you trust in Jesus? Then follow him. Cast yourself upon him. Do not be ashamed of him. There is great blessing there. And then finally, ask this question. Are you a doubter who is being drawn to believe? Well, the invitation that is sort of between the lines of this passage is for you to follow that drawing, that leading, and believe. As we will see next week, Jesus invites you to come to him, to rest in him. Don't be a resisting child, an obstinate child who will not play along. Rather, be a tender child who bears the marks of wisdom and faith as we trust and follow our Lord.